It's great to have you all here. It's a sunny evening after a bit of rain. Uh, there's many, many different things you could be doing. And you've chosen to come out and look at systematic theology. And so I, I commend you for that, that you would want to study about the things of God. Uh, if you've been coming to these studies in the past, you know that uh, this has been... Uh, I think pretty fruitful for all of us as we have sought to gain uh, or, or assemble for ourselves a series of buckets, uh, not buckets to collect the rain, although we're so lacking in rain, maybe you put every bucket you owned out there when it rained so you could collect your rainwater for your garden or whatever it might be finishing off, but it's buckets or categories of theology. So how do you know when you read the Bible, what are the topics or categories that, it, that are being touched upon? And normally when we talk about issues of, of theology or systems of theology or systematic theology or these buckets, these, these buckets into which theological topics may, may fall into, normally we get thinking about the doctrine of salvation. And, and specifically, how is Christ's redemption applied to a human being, to a sinner? And so that, that's generally what we think about. We think about these big $50 words like justification and sanctification and all of these cation words. And you're ready for a vacation after all of that. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't too funny. That was all that was that was dad that was dad joke level on that one, right? And my my sons are groaning over there. But that's what that's what we're trying to do. Then is we we're we're now tonight we're zeroing in on the doctrine of salvation. Now, for some of you, this is going to be a lot of review. Uh, you've gone over this kind of material quite a bit. But my guess is even if you're quite familiar with some of these categories and these ideas, there might be one or two things that, that are actually a little bit new, or they're going to be reminders of things that you haven't thought about. For others of you, this is this some of this might be completely new to you, and you've never thought of it or understood it before. So the challenge in these in these talks is um is that there's too much to cover. And I'm in danger often of trying to do too much. So we'll try to be kind of simple. But at the very least, what's going to happen is even if we're not comprehensive, you'll have some pathways for further exploration, further study. And that's kind of what we want to be. We want to keep assembling all the buckets so we know where God's word all fits in, where all the theology goes. Last thing I'll say just as a preamble before I pray is that uh, next Wednesday is our prayer meeting. And that's a chance to put all of this bucket theology into practice in praying, actually God, praying God's thoughts back to him. And, and then after that, uh, Lord willing, we should be starting then our fall men's and women's Bible studies. Now, if there, if there happens to be a change on that, well, maybe we'll have one more. But this basically is going to be the last one. And then I might you think, oh, yeah, but we have two more sessions to do. I'm so frustrated. There's things I want to go through. 
Well, I, I was just telling the guys that, that maybe if there's a lull between the Bible studies uh, in the future, like say at the end of the fall or maybe in the new year, I might be able to do a couple of these uh, just to, to slot them in. So you can kind of wait till then. So that's kind of where we're at with everything. And I'm going to pray and then we're going to launch in uh, with what is going to be, I think, a very fruitful study for us, even thinking about the application of Christ's redemption to our lives. So let's pray together as we start. Almighty God, we come to you now on this Wednesday night. It is the year of our Lord 2023. Jesus Christ is risen and reigning and praying for us right now. And Holy Father, I pray that according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you would encourage our hearts this evening by your Holy Spirit, that you would comfort us, that you would help us to heed your word, that you would help us to learn some categories so that we would think in an orderly and disciplined fashion, that we would think your thoughts after you, that we would honor you with our lives by seeing you rightly, correctly, precisely, knowing you as you have revealed yourself to be known. And in so doing, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be warmed, that you would cause us to have a deeper devotion to you, a desire to speak to you in prayer, and also a desire to tell of your wonders and your grace to a lost generation. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight, help us with attentiveness, help us with understanding, help us with humility, and also help us to grow in confidence in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in his very own name. Amen. Okay, well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 28. Now, verses 20, before I read these verses, verses 28 through 30, you've got verse 29 through 30, but I'll include verse 28. This section of scripture was described by the Elizabethan Puritan William Perkins as the golden chain of salvation the golden chain. And the reason why he called it the golden chain of salvation was because there are a series of logical points, logical links, if you will, and those logical links are connected. And they're all connected one after another. And so in order for this one to be connected, it requires the joints of all these others. You can't, you can't get to the end link without having these previous links connected. And Perkins actually came up with, I was going to reproduce it, but it was too big, actually. But he came up with this elaborate chart uh, that has not, not only uh, some of the, the text that we're going to read, but has other other links in a chain. So that's still a helpful analogy. People have, since Perkins, have used 
have used that. John Bunyan used the same analogy of the golden chain, and people have been using it ever since. So in this section from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, this is the golden chain of salvation. You can even write that in the margin of your Bible so that you know where it is so you can find it again. Now, I'm, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to set you loose in your tables to, to with a little bit of a project. But I'm going to read this, and you can just let this minister to you as you listen to it. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you can see that there was this repetition and then a linking of a concept or an idea to something else. Now, in your groups, I want you just to take a take a little take a few moments and think through the different topics or categories or buckets that you find in verses 28 through 30. What are the different categories or buckets that you find there and see if you can you can spot those. So uh, it doesn't really matter your naming of them, just, you know, what are the buckets that you can find? Okay, so take a few moments in your groups and see if you can find some buckets. I'm going to be 
What's that? Somebody just posted like that Charlie's has a photograph of the visual. He does, yes. Is that as visual as he It's Yeah, I, I think he put it in the book, but yeah, I was on his book. He had both Bunyans and Perkins. People on the internet, look at that link, and you've got the you'll have the chart there. He's talking to TV land here. You're just trying to find the categories. You don't have to answer all the questions yet. We're almost, I'm giving too much time. How are we doing? Everybody kind of getting a grasp? Okay. Let's start off in verse 28. What are some categories that you found there? These are, so we're going to give labels, some buckets. 
Uh, we're not explaining everything. We're just trying to see what are some of the categories or buckets that would be relevant. So, for example, as we start in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So give me give me some buckets there. Calling. What else? Providence. Anything else? Okay, so that's that you're saying the election in relation to the calling? Yeah. Yeah, called according to his purpose. Yeah. Okay, very good. Okay. Um how from the verse, Glenn? Uh, I'm well, I'm just on verse 28, but yeah, that's right. We're getting there. That's right. So that'll be there. So so just verse 28, okay? Then um you could even you could even speak of God's sovereignty. Okay. Okay, what about verse 29? What do we have there? Foreknowledge. Yeah, there's the big one. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't know who said adoption, but yeah, just you want Robert, you want to explain why adoption? Yeah, so to be conformed to the image of, of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Yeah, I think that's, I agree. I think that's referring to adoption. That's a great category. Any others? Yeah, salvation. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly sovereignty again. Um, in, ter in terms of regeneration, where would you see regeneration? So conformity, okay. So, yeah, possibly. Um, there has to be something to start that off. Might be in there. The idea that, I mean, Christ, Christ is actually referred to the firstborn here, but the idea that these, these brothers, this, this brethren, has to be born. Uh, they've got to be born into this family. Okay, what about what about verse thirty? Okay, so we got calling again. Predestination. Predestination. Justification. Justification. Glorification. Okay. 
And then you see kind of those links, right? Those whom he did something to, he also did something else to, right? So that's the linkage. Then this is where then, you know, these, these links come into play. Now, with these lists, all these buckets, all these categories, we we can uh, we can quibble about which which categories apply to which verses and which, which how how the verses the language of the verses do they fit better in one category or another. But what I wanted just to get everybody doing is starting to think in terms of the categories, and and that's kind of what we need to do. Is there are these categories of theology of which this verse or these series of verses, you can see we get a lot of categories here. We get a lot of buckets. So it's a great place to go to start in thinking about uh, these the systematic theology and, and in terms of redemption applied to people, applied to sinners, applied to Christ's own. Now, I'm going to just have you do one more exercise on this uh, because I think then this is going to then, if this is maybe going to bend your brain just a little bit. I'd like you to think in terms of a timeline, a timeline of past, present, and future. And I want you just to think through those verses and think about when are these things taking place? What time? Are, are, some, are some of these categories referring something to something more that's taken place in the past? Are they taking place in the present? Are they taking place in the future? And uh, yeah, that's Jared's giving me that look of that I'm being mean because it's actually a little bit harder than you might think. But I want you to just talk about it in your groups and just start talking about past, present, and future, uh, even as it applies to some of these categories in this language that you have there. So I'm just going to give you a few minutes just to talk about that and see see if you can kind of sort through and come up with some conclusions that way. Okay.
How's everybody doing? On the one hand, on the other hand. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Can you tell me just some observations then you've made? I'm not asking necessarily for you to slot the past, present, and future stuff in. I'm just asking, what are some observations that you see about these verses in terms of time? What are some of the things that you've spotted? Okay. Some of the categories span seem to span multiple time slots. Okay. That's helpful. Someone else? There's like an eternal aspect. There's an eternal aspect to it. So, yeah. So, so what are we dealing with here? Are we talking, are we talking, I think we've said this in the past. Um, are we, are we looking at things, you know, from God's viewpoint or are we looking, that's supposed to be an island. <laughs> Okay, I'll make it to the eyeball if you want it. It's really creepy. And, and the fancy theological way of describing this, this is this is archetypal. And this is uh sorry, yeah, this is this is archetypal, that's right, and this is ectypal. But you don't need to know that. But the idea that is the language referring to being spoken as things from God's perspective? Or is it us looking up and understanding this is kind of what's going on as God's reveal it to us? So in terms of it sounds like there's, you know, there's kind of an eternal perspective to all of this. So is then that we talking about from God's perspective 
or from how it all, how we all experience it, the Christian believers. So that's very good. Any, any other observations? The birds are all in the air. Okay, well, that's going to be, you've got to give further explanation on that, Mr. Green, a scholar there, Rob. The is 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 simple task. It's being explained as as in Daniel. Okay, so so for example, I, these the most vivid one to see is the last word of verse thirty. Uh, these he also glorified, glorified as Rob just said. It is it ends in ed, which in English. Is an English simple past. I thought I thought glory I thought glory was all in the future and saying well it's already you know he he also glorified like it's a done deal in the past. You catch that? You see those past those those action words the verbs. You know it makes sense. Oh yeah, he predestined. Well, I think yeah, that's way back. In eternity past. Yeah, that's way back there. But it's also saying at the end of the chain, he justified those whom he justified. He also doesn't say he will glorify. He says he also glorified. Just as done a deal as the predestined part way back in eternity past. So, so that's where it gets a little tricky. When we look at the golden chain... And people get a little bit mistaken sometimes. They think this golden chain of salvation is an order in time. Like one after the other in time. Although there's a time element to it, by and large, it's not a, a series in time, but it's a series in logic that each of these builds on another. And that's, that's the difference. It's a logical order that you can't have. You can't have glorification. If this is glorification down here. You can't have glorification if you don't have predestination. And you can't have glorification if you don't have calling. And if you don't have justification. You can't have glorification. Now, the world says, oh, yeah, you can have glorification. Everybody's going to heaven. It's all great. Yeah, but they don't have predestination or justification or calling or anything. So they've, they've broken the chain, and they're trying to hold on to this single link, but it's not a chain anymore. right? And all of this, even this glorification, although we think of it as being in the future, from God's perspective, as Rob pointed out, it's a done deal. Now, is that how you live your life even this week? As if under God, if you're a Christian believer, that you, as far as God's concerned, you are glorified. It's a done deal. Like that would change how you live. You would stop thinking, oh, I've got to be, I got to be good in order to try to make it to heaven. No, no, no. You're in Christ. You are glorified, we could say, positionally. Or from God's perspective, it's just a matter of time for that to be to be borne out. But it's a done deal. Any other observations then on time? 
Where, where's some other, just, did you see any tension? What about what about what about back in verse twenty nine and this idea predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we that he might be the firstborn among many brothers? What's is there anything going on in terms of time there? Predestined certainly sounds like it's way back, eternity past. But what about the other stuff? Any thoughts on that? Did anybody see that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so there, so some idea of some conformity to the image of his son. Well, he's viewing it as being pretty much a done deal. Like it's going to happen, but to be conformed, we know, well, I'm still in process. I'm not completely conformed. So the application of that conformity is in process, even though from God's perspective, it's a done deal. And so then that's where then you see then the possibility if the if the bucket here, uh, where did it go, is sanctification. That even sanctification that might, be in our experience, be a time of being conformed to the image of Christ through our lives, from God's perspective, he's predestined it to happen, and it's it's a done deal. It's as if it's done. And in his view, it is done, which is a remarkable thing. But then that's how God views all as a whole. Any questions on that? Does that, I mean, I, well, there's going to be lots of questions, but does it, does you start to see then those tensions? Go ahead, uh, Alan, at the back. Yeah, I just find it interesting that idea of calling or justification those are both the things we were those are the things that pertain to time at the moment <clears throat> but um you would say that's appropriate right whereas we wouldn't necessarily say that about glorification yeah so so that's another so that's a great observation so justification in terms of god's perspective well of course then then he sees the whole and 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 predestination to glorification and justification is seen as a whole but justification in terms of its application which is what we're talking about tonight must happen in time because the only way you can be justified is if the the son has taken on humanity that he has been obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, that he has rendered righteousness righteousness in his own sacrifice. And that righteousness is then credited to a sinner's account when? When they believe in him. So justification is in time. So there's a tension there. I'm going to add one more tension. Just it's more of a it's a pictorial category that you'll have seen. <laughs> You'll have seen me talk about, and the elders will talk about, and you might be familiar with this. And the, and the diagram basically goes like this. And this is, this, this here, it, we can say that this is the cross, and then this is, this is then, I don't know how to reference, this is, this is uh, Jesus coming back. There's, there's, we live in between 
these two eras. Now, it's as if the future era of the new heavens and the new earth, it's as if that has come back into the present. It is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the future, has broken into the present, even in Jesus' own ministry as he performed miracles, as he raised the dead. He did all that. He broke into the present. And yet, he was crucified even as we're still in this world with all of its sin and wickedness. Now, when he was, even when he rose from the dead, instantly there wasn't the new heavens and new earth. Was You know, that didn't happen, right? Right? We're still in Canada here. It's not perfect, you know, right? Okay, just checking. Okay, that's for sure somebody said, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so we're in this tension. And this is then what we will call the now and the not yet. The now of the kingdom has come. And yet there's this not yet part of the kingdom that is yet to come. We can know that we're glorified in Christ positionally now, but there's a not yet of being glorified truly in the resurrection forever. Uh, the already and the not yet. And so that some of these tensions come into play that you are declared just now. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you're declared just now. You're just before God now. And yet on the last day, you will be vindicated before all people. And that's the not yet aspect. You'll be vindicated before all of creation as belonging to the Lord Jesus. And so, so those are those are some of the categories. There's some of the more buckets. So this is this is uh, now, not yet, tension. Now, not yet. Already, not yet. Or if you want to be really fancy, you can say it's inauguration without consummation. It's the inauguration of the kingdom without its consummation, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay. Well, let's get to some more categories. Now, I'm going to just skip over uh, the common grace category. Matthew 5.45, the Lord Jesus he, himself, he said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. If you want to know the common grace as it's understood, or just the, the generic blessing of those created in the image of God and this creation that's still preserved, even though it's affected by sin, that is an undeserved favor towards people. The fact that Calgary, by and large, is a great place to live is a common, undeserved favor of God. It is undeserved. Everybody who enjoys Calgary and enjoys the mountains and enjoys the little bit of summer that we have, everybody that way, they don't deserve it. Right. And yet it is something, you know, that people can know and understand that there is a common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So that's that's a key component. But what about God's special purposes? His special purposes. Go to Ephesians chapter one.
Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 and following is one of then, again, one of these epic texts to talk about these categories. And in particular, when we think about election, what happens when there's an election in Canada? What are you doing? Not much of anything. No. Sorry. You're voting. And what is a vote? It's it's choosing. You're 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 picking. You're choosing. And it's the same. It's the same when God chooses. He picks. He makes a choice. Uh, you know, the single guys here when they want to get married, they pick somebody. They pick a gal, they make a choice. And they make a choice that's the special then object of their affection. Well, that's the same with election. And we're going to look through and see then this particularity that we have even in God's own purposes. So we're going to read through the first 14 verses. I'm just going to read them and you can follow along. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he did what? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He didn't wait to see if we'd choose him first. So this is what's called a choice by fiat. Not the not the Italian car company. By fiat, by by God's, it's unconditional. He's not coerced. He's not waiting to see, looking down the corridor of time to see what you might do. He's just choosing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then there's a purpose. Verse 4. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 5, he, in case you didn't get the message, he pre, predestined. Okay. Just the word, right? In case I think everybody caught that. Predestined. Now, with some, some professing Christians, to point these things out is not a way to win friends and influence people because, because it is pre. Here's your destiny. It's pre-decided, predestined. Okay. Oh, but yeah, but what about this? Or what about thinking, you know, no, no, it's be, he, he, he plotted out the destiny before you're there, before any existence. He predestined us with an intention. See, this is where the harshness of the first year philosophy department at University of Calgary, when they think about predestination, they think of it as this harsh determinism. Oh, no, no, no. For the Christian, look at this. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's actually about the father's love for the son. And that love is so overwhelming 
That love is so intense. It is so then by, ne by necessity gracious towards sinners and so glorious that actually it can take criminals and it can turn them into family members. That's what we're talking about. Predestined for adoption as sons. Taking criminals and rebels and enemies and saying, yeah, you, you've got the full inheritance of the royal family. Let's You got it all. Not holding anything back. It's all yours. So when anytime anybody gets into these debates with you on Facebook or at the Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is, don't get sucked in. It's not a cold doctrine. It is a glorious, beautiful doctrine. The, the particularity of God's choice. And then you, then you, what your proper response is, why me? Why me? And then you see, oh, it's because he loves me. It's not because I'm lovable. It's because he loves me. And then that is overwhelming when you consider that. In him, again, notice that's another study. You've maybe done it. You know, if you haven't, just look at all the in Christ, in him language in this passage on your own. In him, we have, not we hope to have, not, it's not, we have it now. We possess it now. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to, to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is epic, this plan. And it's all united in Christ. And he's made it known to us. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, you can insert a royal inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. At this point, I'll just say, people who talk and argue for the free will of man, unhindered, you've got to ask yourself, yeah, but what about the free will of God? What about the free will of God? Does God not have free will? Can God not choose to do what he wants to do? Well, he predestined freely according to the purpose of him, works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who's he getting counsel from? Well, he's getting the counsel from, it's according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't consult with anybody. He's definitely not consulting with you or me. I. He didn't ask me if I wanted to be saved. He saved me. Praise God. Because if it was up to my wisdom, I wouldn't be here. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise 
of his glory. And I'm going to stop there. But that you can start to see there's a different kind of a more of a temporal chain that starts to be manifested as we see God has all these predestinating purposes. And then they start being carried out in our lives, being sealed by the spirit. And the spirit is given to us as a guarantee of what we're going to receive even on the last day, even in glory, even in heaven. So language of choice, language of predestination. This is the language of election. Okay. So that's, that's, what we kind of have to, we, we, we need to get our heads around uh, first off. Okay. Any questions on, on predestination, election, things like that. Yeah, go ahead, Kristen. Yeah, I don't know about an example. Uh, I'm always bad with examples. Uh, but I think, I think, in terms, certainly the logic is that there's an order, there's things that are required to be there. There is a temporal element. There's a temporal element as we've seen, but the temporal element has to has to reckon in terms of this, has to reckon with, are we looking at it from God's perspective or man's? Now, because some of these features like glorification in time, they they are oriented to the last day you know jesus is the alpha and the omega there is there is the last judgment there is you know the new jerusalem there's a new heavens and new earth there's all these things in the last days that's our eschatology so there is that sense but from god's perspective and at least in the language in romans 8 it's kind of all bundled together and viewed as a whole so i think there's there's a that's why I say there's a logic to it. There's an orderliness to it that you can't pull the pieces out. And yet they have these varying features of the spectrum of time. So, I yeah, I can't really think of an example. I'll, I will. I will chew on one. Uh, but then creation could be. Yeah. As far as an, an order. Uh, guess the, the tricky. The, what's that? Yeah, it's both. Because there's people. That's the problem with creation is people debate about about the time and the or and they'll say there's the order but not the time. Uh, they'll say it's kind of all one. So that would be an example, uh, even of the debates and the tensions. But yeah. So, any other questions on predestination election? Yeah, go ahead. Well, this is where this is where uh, any any discussion of predestination and you have it both in Ephesians one and in Romans eight. You have then this this sense that God's God's purposes, which He's choosing to say, this is you know the things that I've promised you, I've promised from before the foundations of the earth. But that's also why the God of the Bible has revealed himself in this way. So that he, I mean, he's very, very 
making allowances, very condescending to us, because then he shows us all the ways that he has been faithful to his promises. That's one thing about the God of the Bible versus other religions is that the integrity of God to keep his promises, his covenants, his things that he has said he's going to do. This fits in with the concept of prophecy, all of this stuff. It's all about showing his integrity, his faithfulness, his righteousness, if you will. And it's about showing that so that his people, when he makes promises to them, they can say, yeah, I know, I know that he's not going to drop me. And of course, then the supreme example, the supreme example is when Jesus is crying out in the garden, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if, you know, he's yet not my will, but yours be done. And he's, and he's on the cross and it looks like all the promises are kaput. It looks like that's it. It's all a joke. It's all, he's dropping them. Like just, just in your language, like, it looks like at that point, this God of the Bible that everybody's been looking for and looking for this Messiah. Uh, and, and you know it, even from the guys after Jesus died on the road to Emmaus, at the end, at the end of Luke, you know, they're like, yeah, we had hoped that, you know, he was the one to deliver Israel. Oops, I guess not. <laughs> you know, I guess that didn't work out. And it's like all their hopes of the consistency and the faithfulness of those promises, it's kind of like, yeah, I guess it did. You know, it's like a lot of stuff. I guess it, you know, it just didn't work out. You know, they didn't, he didn't come through for us. And then Jesus appears to the men on the road to a man's, uh, you know, and then, you know, here, and then later on, look at my hands, look at my side. It's me, you know. So, so the evidence of the risen Christ amongst the witnesses you know, for weeks then they're able to see his glorified flesh there. The evidence of that then vindicates the promises. And that's why then we can rely on his promises for our future, right? Because we see, well, that's that's paltry compared to the promises of, of the Messiah being risen from the dead. So, yeah. So, but if you're only looking in, abs you're only looking abstractly at, OL determinism, like, you know, UFC first year philosophy class. It's just cold. Like, this is not determinism. This is not, this is not this cold rationality. This is the living God who, who, who calls people to know him because he has uncovered himself to be revealed unknown. So, okay. yeah so so the challenge i'll just i'll just say very quickly because we've got to move on the, the challenge is bunyan's allegory is trying to describe these things but in terms of people's experience and my, my experience seeing in the church is that people who look like they're the real deal and look like by all accounts that they're going to heaven, uh, then they can forsake the faith and then show that, you know, they're a, they're a Judas branch, that they weren't actually the real deal, even though they kind of look like it, 
or that, like the parable of the sower, they actually seem to seem to pop up, but they actually have no lasting fruit. And that's to be determined on the last day. So that's the doctrine of apostasy. So I'll have, we'll have to dig into that one later on, uh, maybe afterwards. Okay, election. Not very far. That's okay. Uh, you have in the handout there, uh, just this is a note. This is just a looking at Acts 16, 14. You can look it up in your Bible or you just look at it in, in the little sheet there. I think you've got that, Acts 16, 14. Is that in the handout, right? Right, handout, okay. Uh, Acts 16, 14, in terms of calling, you have this these different dynamics of calling the different ways. A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, one that worshiped God, heard us. So here's there in this sense, the external call, which is the, the charge of all Christians, the charge of Christian preachers, is to have this, this summons, excuse me, this summons that everybody must repent and believe the gospel. So she heard us. She heard this, this, this summons. Why, do, why on a Sunday do I summon people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there's this external call. And then, and then it's a little bit out of order, but it says, whose heart the Lord opened. So that's, that's regeneration in the, re, in the restricted sense. Caused her, caused her to have a new heart, a heart to be open. Whose heart the Lord opened to give heed to the things which were spoken by Paul. So here is then, then this, this external summons. So we preach the gospel, we you know share the gospel, we tell people the gospel. And then mysteriously, mysteriously, then God causes people to be born again to be born from above and given a new heart and actually given the capacity to believe, which they did not have before. And then in that capacity to believe, then when they hear the gospel, upon having that regenerative heart, they actually, they actually respond to that internal call and they, can, they can't refuse it because their heart is energized toward it. It is effectual, that calling, because they've been born again. And, and the born again passage, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If you've been around, you've heard me just make this point many times, but we'll just look at John 3, 3. So in your Bibles, look at John 3, 3. And you should have a little footnote there. No footnote. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what does the footnote say after born again? Above. So you've heard people more in the 70s, they used to talk about all those born again Christians, you know, born again Christians are, you know, voting the wrong way, they used to say in the 70s. Born again, born again, born again Christians. But actually, it is born again. 
which is the logic of John 3. I don't have time to go through it. But there's, it is also a sense of being born from above. It's a spiritual new birth. It is a spiritual thing. So being born from above. And so then if you're born from above, you must be born again. That's the argument of John chapter 3. That's the argument from Jesus' own lips. You must be born again. So that is why you have non-Christian friends and relatives, and you keep talking to them about Jesus. Every Christmas dinner, every Thanksgiving dinner, every summer vacation, you talk to them about Jesus, and you keep calling them with the gospel. And it just, whoop, it just falls, doesn't seem like it does anything. But then the story will go. There was that one summer when one aunt or uncle shared the gospel with their nephew or their niece. And then, then they, they listened. They listened and they wanted to hear more and they wanted to read more and they wanted to know more. And they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. Well, why, how are they able to believe? It's because they were given a new heart. They were born again. And that this is a secret work of God, but it is a necessary work of God. So there's kind of this external call. There's then regeneration that overcomes the shackles of the will. I'll just say this to just very, because we are in this Lutheran building. One of Luther's great emphases was that the human will because of sin it's not completely eradicated you choose we all choose we choose but the problem is that the will is in bondage he wrote a book called the bondage of the will it's in bondage it's enslaved so then if it's in bondage what do you freely do with your free will well, your free will isn't truly free. Your free will wants to freely choose everything that is oriented to the bondage. So you freely choose sin. You freely choose what's selfish. You freely choose what is not oriented to worshiping God. You freely choose those things. You're choosing all the time, but you don't realize you're choosing what chains on. And what being, what, what then when you're born again, just like Wesley saying, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Well, it's not he rose, went forth because he's so clever and I made a choice. It's because of then, we can call it this effectual grace, or I even prefer this overcoming grace. This overcoming grace that overcomes our bondage. And in that effectual calling, then, when we're born again, the effectual call, we must respond. Like, it's not a choice, then. It's that there, there is almost, why would, there's no other way we would do it. Because we're, our heart is then thrust upon God. He calls us, and we want, our heart is made to respond to him. Because it's been freed from the bondage of sin. We still, we're the ones choosing. We're the ones believing. He's not believing for us. We're believing. We're repenting. But we're enabled to do so as we'll get to. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's a problem. Tough to get, you know, talk about one part of the chain without the others. Okay. 
you must be born again. And that's why all this talk, we get into these Christian political things. There's a lot to talk about kind of Christian nation type stuff. And I'm in favor of some of it. But if we don't understand that unless people are born again, they're not Christians, well, then it's kind of a new Phariseeism and it's not really, it's not really Christianity. It's maybe Christian adjacent, if we want to use that language. It's not Christianity. So we just kind of got to be clear on that. We have to be advocates that you must be born again. Uh, then there's conversion. Conversion. And this then is kind of then, this can then be the sense of from our perspective, this moving from being, having one pattern of life to another. But within this, within our experience, in this change, well, the only way we can have this, this move is because we've been born again. So I'm going to, you've got the Burkhoff quote there. I'll just read it out. I'm under conversion in your handout. He causes the regenerated, those who have been born again, in their conscious life to turn to him in faith and repentance. So, so there is this experiential part. Like, you know, like I remember when I turned from my life of sin to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when it happened. Now, I was interested before that. I was interested in spiritual things. I'm starting, I was learning, reading, this sort of thing. But I remember when I turned. And in my experience, I'm the one who, I'm the one who chose. I'm the one who chose Jesus and I turned. But what the Bible informed me about was, had I not had the Lord act upon me, and cause me to be born again, and cause me then to respond to this irresistible grace, this, this effectual call. If he had not done that, I wouldn't have chosen him. I would have just kind of been religious for a while, and then I would have looked back and said, yeah, it was just a phase. I've met lots of people. That's how it goes. Oh, it was just a phase. Oh, yeah, I used to go to church. I used to go to church for a while. And that, but that's, there has to be conversion. Now this gets confusing because in the world, there's all kinds of people that are proselytized and they switch religions. So that's what people in the world, they think, oh, you're just switching a belief system. But we see that, no, there's all this supernatural work that goes behind it. So I continue with, with, um, Burkhoff's definition, second sentence. From this definition, it already appears that God is the author of conversion. This is clearly taught in Scripture, Acts 11, 1 Timothy 2. The new life of regeneration does not of itself issue in a conscious change of life, but only through a special operation of the Holy Spirit, with the references, but while in regeneration, God only works and man is passive, in conversion, man is called upon to cooperate. So be very clear. This is not man cooperating generally in his salvation, but it is that we have to respond. You've got to believe. Jesus said, follow me. He said, repent and believe the gospel. You do it. You. 
But even so, man can only work with the power which God imparts to him. Like regeneration, conversion too consists in a momentary change and is not a process like sanctification. But in distinction from regeneration, it is a change in the conscious rather than the unconscious life of man. Now, I mean, Burkhoff, that, that's, a, that's a pretty helpful definition there. So you have to consciously move, move from living one way, from following one path to following Christ. But then you see that there's all this stuff behind the scenes, all this unseen work on your heart, all of God's purposes, all this predestination, all this stuff going on that is in back of your choosing and enabling you to make these choices. So to the question then that we get into, and it's a little bit back from the ladies in the back table there, the predestination question. God never, never calls us to look at ourselves and ask the question, am I elect or not? He never does that. He never tells us to look at ourselves and to try to figure out if we are predestined or not in this isolated, abstract way. Now, what he does want is for us to believe in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, John Calvin, you know, you think Calvin's the boogeyman, right? Oh, Calvin, predestination, whatever. Well, Calvin, he highlights in his institutes, he highlights the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you know and understand the gospel, then you have then a basis from which to consider the questions about predestination. You don't look at the questions about predestination in the abstract before you've considered what is the gospel. So it's just interesting. Calvin is much more Christ-centered even when he's talking about predestination. So don't let these don't let these wannabe philosophers and stuff get you in a trap. It is about Jesus. And then insofar as God has said things about predestination, we take what God has said. We don't speculate about, you know, who's got the tattoo on the back of their neck, you know, who's got the predestined elect tattoo on the back of their neck you know everybody check you got it oh sorry you don't have it too bad for you right no no there's there's churches professedly that teach oh well i i'm only supposed to preach the gospel to the elect so then they will they get it gets really weird in a hurry because then how do you know who's the elect that I'm supposed to preach the gospel to? But we are to preach the gospel to all people. It is, there is then a, a common call and summons of the gospel. And then what happens then when you believe in the gospel and you follow Jesus Christ and you follow him to the end, to the Pilgrim's Progress question, when you follow him to the end, you see... Oh, yes. Why am I here? It's because of God's choice. 
is electing love toward me. You know, it's not because I'm clever, right? So you can look back on that. So that's that's kind of then how to see that. Now, okay, you see there, there's two parts to this conversion, two parts. What are the two parts there on the second page? Everybody's stunned. Okay. Repentance and faith. Why, why would we say repentance is the negative element? What does that mean? Is repentance a bad thing? What, what, what does it mean by that? Repentance as the negative element. It's acknowledging your sin. Yeah. So sin is negative, And it's owning your sin. And it then is a turning from that. There has to be a turning from the sin. Conversion, anybody who taught the 20th century is rife with, and now the 21st century, rife with all of these so-called conversions that don't have any consciousness of a turn from sin. There must be an owning of sin and a turning from sin. Okay, so that's its negative element because it's, Dealing with sin. There has to be this response of sin. Okay. Then, of course, the positive element, the positive is faith. Faith is positive because it's moving forward and trusting in, in the true Christ, the risen Christ. The Christ, it's not faith. It's not faith in a decision. Oh, I went forward at Billy Graham, you know, or I... I I prayed a prayer at camp, or I, you know, I did this, or I did that. It's not faith and faith. The TV preachers, they want you to have faith and faith. That's false. You don't, well, you don't have enough faith. You got to trust your faith. No, I don't trust my faith. I trust Jesus. So it's not faith and faith. It's not faith in a decision. It is faith in the true living Christ who is alive right now. Yes? Agree? Okay. Check it. It's alive right now. So here's faith, right? We're trusting in this Christ. Not seen, but he's alive right now. And all that he has accomplished, we're trusting in him for that now. So that's the positive element. And so when you're born again, and you're summoned by God, you respond by, he says, follow me and you leave the other garbage behind you drop everything and you positively follow him you trust him now many of you have heard me talk about three elements not original to me to think about this of faith you have them there what are the three elements say them out loud for me knowledge, knowledge. okay Somebody's learned some Latin there. This would be a smarty pie. Okay. Okay. This, this threefold description of saving faith comes from John Calvin. I actually got a hunch it's actually older than that, but Calvin is generally the one that this is acknowledged as threefold division of of what is true faith. 
And it really helps me. It's very practical. It'll help you in sorting through, thinking through things. Okay. And you need all three. So the first component is knowledge. If somebody doesn't, if somebody, if somebody says, oh yeah, well, I believe in Jesus, but then they don't think Jesus is God, well, then they don't have a sufficient knowledge. They lack sufficient knowledge. Little children can get taught in, you know, at their parents' knee or in little kids' classes, Sunday school classes, they can be given this knowledge. And sometimes the kids get it right, and sometimes they don't. And that's part of the challenge is that, okay, we want to give a true, accurate knowledge of who Jesus is that's appropriate for a young age. But you just, like, people, like, the Mormons don't have a proper knowledge. I don't care how zealous they are about Jesus. They don't have a true knowledge of the true Christ. So you have to have a sufficient and true knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel. There has to be a, a certain content that must be true. Okay, so that part. Okay, that makes sense. You got to know something. You know, got to know enough to do. The second asset is ascent. Yeah, verbal ascent. Okay, ascends it. Uh, this ascent is basically, I like to think of it as just checking the box. Do you agree that these things are true? You know, or it's like, I, I got a new computer. And, and so, you know, I got to go through reams and reams of this software. And at the end, click to, to say you agree with all of the terms and that you've read all of this. And then at that point, I'm like, uh, boy, I really sped read it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I agree. I didn't read it very closely, but it's there's something there. <laughs> I'm signing my life away. I assent to this. And they're going to bind me to it. But that's what you're saying. Oh, Jesus Jesus died on the cross. Yeah. Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. And this is actually with children, but also with lots of people, lots of adults out there. And actually lots of, there's this kind of a certain kind of evangelism. And this is where it kind of gets, there's a bit of a sting with this. Because there's a lot of churches that thought all you got to do is just give people the barest knowledge and as quickly as possible, even with a little bit of emotional manipulation, try to get them to say, yes, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Okay, you're going to heaven. No worries for you. He used to call it easy believism. And it's, but it's not true saving faith. It's not true saving faith. Knowledge, assent. It's, there should be assent, but that's not enough. There has to be then this third component, which is trust. A true trust, a fiducia, a true, a true leaning of one's life upon it. Because I can say, yeah, the wooden box is there. It's brown. Yeah, it, it looks like something. Yeah, okay, fine. But that's different than me going over and leaning on it and not falling over. Because I trust it. I trust it to hold me up. And that's what you're doing. 
Because there's all kinds of people who are more than happy to say, oh, Jesus, yeah, I know he's there. I agree, he's great. Yeah, sure. But they just won't lean on him. They won't trust him. You've got to forsake all and, and actually have to, I have to trust him. I have to lean on him. And that's the trust. And that's also for parents. That's why when, you know, you, you'll have your kids, they're going to, they're going to know stuff if they're taught in this church and they're going to agree with it. And, and we want to encourage that. We want to encourage that. But at the same time, we also want to be careful as time goes on that just because they assent to it, which we hope all the kids will, we don't want to automatically think that there's a true living trust there. And that's why then over time, we like to have a little bit of an examination, even of the kids to see, is there a true saving faith or are they just assenting to what their parents have told them? And so that's a little bit the tensions, but that's why then we with hope for these kids, that's why we also want to examine the children when they get older to see is there true saving faith, true saving trust. Any questions on that threefold aspect of faith? Because that's a that's huge. It's huge depending on your church background. It explains a lot of stuff, probably. Go ahead, Christine. So that's a that'd be a kind of a different question. So infant mortality and incapacity. Then you're dealing in the questions of of God's mercy in relation to in relation to people's capacities, uh, and which I don't know if I can cover that here. But that is, I mean, it's that's the exception is just trying to think through those issues, trying to think through. But normally, normally for those with capacities. And two, I think sometimes people are shortchanged in terms of their capacities. Uh, seen lots of mentally disabled folks that I think I think their knowledge of assent and trust is a very childlike faith, right? Uh, but then when, when when Jesus speaks of a childlike faith, that's actually what he's talking about. He's actually talking about that trust. So so that's a, that's the component there. And um, yeah, anyways. Oh, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think so. The thief on the cross, you know, he didn't have a full systematic theology about Jesus, right? You know, but, you know, what was Alistair Begg's thing? You know, the man on the cross said I could come. <laughs> it's just, but that's all it is, right? So one more. Yeah. See, now we're getting into child mortality and different issue. So I think it, there is a dynamic to it, but I want to be real careful. I actually don't want to get into that one, but, but it does relate to the children. I don't think it actually relates to the, the children necessarily being saved in the sense that we would understand. And it's, we're talking in real mysteries there. Um, so I'm going to leave that to the side. We can talk about it afterwards because that's going to, that's another one. Um, the joys of systematic theology. Okay.
Justification. Justification. We're just going to hit a couple more of these. Actually, you've got your, uh, let's do this. Let's do it this way. Okay, let's let's look at let's look at your look at your little now look at your little handout sheet. So this one, Ordo Salutis. More Latin means order of salvation. At the table tonight, I said, boys, we're all joining the Ordo Salutis. And they thought we were kind of like joining the Templars or something. The order of salvation. It's a holy order. Um Look at Romans 5. Romans 5. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, that is then the fruit or the benefits of justification. Justification is a declaration whereby God declares a sinner to be just. Now, the helpful the helpful um, precursor to that is actually back in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. We talked about this when we looked at the person and work of Christ. The righteousness of God, verse 21. Now the, right, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law. So... It's, it's apart from the Old Testament law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this is not law-keeping in this way. It's something distinct. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay? So this now is tying together faith and standing right before God. And when you hear righteousness or justification, you immediately think of a courtroom. You're in a courtroom with God, and anybody who says, oh, well, no, it's not, that's not the way the language was, and yeah, that you're importing, you know, modern conceptions of the legal system. Ah. The Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, they all had very forensic legal minds. And so then this is, here is the righteousness of God. So the justice of God, how is the justice of God applied to the sinner? Well, it's saying that somehow the righteousness of God is actually going to be manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this is, again, that wide open gospel call. It's all who believe. So, but it's but you've got to believe. All who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of glory, the glory of God, and are justified. So this is in anybody basically 
who, who believes they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We looked at that last time. Christ is the wrath absorber. absorber. Why is there wrath? Well, in the courtroom, the judge says, guilty. Guilty is charged. Here's the sentencing. Here's the wrath. Here's the punishment. We don't send you to jail. It's capital punishment. Boom. That's what you get. You're, you're condemned. So he's, and here, in, here's, he's sending out the sentencing, but he's already provided Jesus to absorb and exhaust that penalty. He's taking all that penalty and taking it away. So the justice is always being carried out. We're, I was telling boys, and they had never heard of it. We were talking about the table. You know, I somebody told me, oh, justification. It's just as if I never sinned. That's what that's one of those little Christianese ditties. Justification means just as if I never sinned. Well, actually, no. It's actually because you sinned. You be you sinned that that wrath was poured out on Christ. It was meted out. You have to have the sentencing carried out. And as the sentencing is carried out, he says then, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Does God wink at sin? In this city, if there's a judge that keeps letting out these criminals back on the street, as soon as the cops bring him in, do we say he's a good judge? Too many bad judges in this town, I think. They let these guys go. They're bad judges. Well, God's not a bad judge. He's a good judge. He doesn't let people go. So he has to show his righteousness. The sin must be punished. It's either punished in Christ or it's punished in yourself as you stand before God on the last day. There's no, there's no getting away from the punishment. It, it has to be meted out. So it shows God's righteousness, verse 25b, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, that is God, might be just because he, he punishes sin and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he can declare a sinner to be just in his sight because they're believing in Christ. Because Christ took the penalty, the just penalty of the courtroom, took it in himself already. So that's justification. The idea then of the great exchange. We talked about the two things, but sin and righteousness Christ's righteousness is then put on the sinner the sinner uh, this is the sinner here the sinners the sinner's sin is put on Jesus Christ 2 Corinthians 5 21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You think, oh, I'm such a sinner. Yeah, I know you are. 
and me too. But if you're a Christian believer and you're trusting in Christ, God doesn't view you that way. He views you as having the very righteousness of Christ. Now, you go ahead and you act. You, you, we all act contrary to that. But that's not who we are anymore. God views us as having the very righteousness of Christ. So don't be down. Don't be depressed. This is, this is how God views you. How could he view you in any lesser way? He views you as having the very righteousness of his own dear son. It's a marvel. So we shouldn't be dour and sad and in these things when we see justification. Justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls, as the as the reformers argued. And then this leads then to adoption. I'm going to read John Murray. I'm going to make a comment about sanctification, and then we're going to close. Adoption, as the term implies, clearly implies, is an act of transfer from an alien family into the family of God himself. This is surely the apex of grace and privilege. So that's a that's definitely John Murray. That was his line to be adopted as God's child. It's, it's the apex. It's not just that I've got my sins forgiven. That's awesome. But then I just be a forgiven sinner. But no, I'm actually brought into his family. What are we saying? Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Pat Sabell. Pray for Pat. He's there, he's there, him and his wife, they're having hard times out there. Some stuff. Just a great wonderful song jesus thank you once your enemy now seated at your table it's the apex of grace and privilege we would not dare to conceive of such grace far less to claim it apart from god's own revelation and assurance back to the question back here god's told us that this is true we would never claim it but god said no this is it it staggers imagination because of its amazing condescension and love, the spirit alone could be the seal of it in our hearts. And we just read that in Ephesians 1, the seal. He's the seal of our inheritance. It's only the spirit could be such a seal. So you need to meditate on your adoption in Christ if you're a Christian believer. The sanctification comment, I'm just going to say in Philippians 2, Philippians 2, just go over there. This is, a, this is just an easy one. There's lots about sanctification, but we won't be able to get to it. Philippians chapter 2. It would help if I'm in Philippians instead of Galatians. Um, Philippians 2, remember we looked at verses 5 through 11 last time? If you pick up in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he gives this command. Work out your own salvation. Okay, so that's a command. That's a command to basically be sanctified. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You have to work it out. It's a command. 
This is part of progressive sanctification. You have to work it out. But the critical piece, look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. She would say, well, you know, I'm having trouble praying. Well, have you tried to pray? Are you working at trying to pray? Are you are you planning to pray? Are you are you reorienting your schedule to pray? Are you doing all the things? Are you working at praying? You say, oh yeah, but no, I just I just want to go. I just you know, it's just got to come to me. Well, no, when you're working at it in faith, when you're working at it, God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. And that's the nature of progressive sanctification. You're progressing along, becoming more and more, as we saw back in Romans 8, conformed to the image of his son. But you work it out. You pray. You know, people say, oh, well, you know, I got all this sin, you know, oh, oh, well. Stop doing it. You say, well, I don't know. Well, no, just like work at it. Work at stopping. Say, oh, well, I don't want to be legalistic. Yeah, well, no, it's not legalistic if you trust the Lord and you stop doing it because the Lord works through the means of you stopping it. So, so don't get into this hyper-spirituality because that's not the New Testament spirituality. New Testament spirituality is, is use all energies you can to be holy and to seek the Lord and advance the gospel and trust that God will work through those means. Progressive sanctification. And then we already talked about glorification. We already talked about the fact that you are positionally, at least from God's perspective, glorified. And you're just waiting for the full realization of that glory, even the glory of the resurrection. And I'm guessing if you're like me, even this week, you haven't been living. You've been living like, oh, well life's so hard and oh woe is me and no things aren't that great you know and and you're scrambling to do it all you know not realizing oh god views me as glorified already so all the more reason this is what the godly giants of the faith throughout history have done all the more reason if i know the end is assured all the more reason to try to seek to, to pursue God, to go hard after God, to try things, to try new things, to try to study your Bible, try to plan and orchestrate and do all these things and do it all. But you're not doing it to earn his favor. You're doing it because you have his favor. And that is the glory of the gospel. And I'll tell you what, friends. Those truths are freeing and give joy. And that is also why in the other churches in town and elsewhere, people have to create manufactured happiness in their churches because they're so depressed from trying to do it all themselves and they can't do it and they fail. And so they have to escape into just fluffy religion. Whereas the people who have grounded their faith in the Lord and in his truth, they have real joy and they can suffer really suffer and they've got joy because they you know hey i'm i'm already glorified in terms of god's view and they have such delight to know that they can persevere whirlwind tour 
it's not enough. It's a drink with a fire hose. But the whole point, close with a anecdote, I'm going to pray. The whole point is like Prosperly Lingdo said to me. He is an Indian guy who I met in Boston many years ago. The intention of the study of the things of God, the intention is this. He would say to me, as we talk about these things of God, it's just like two flames coming together. And we talk about these things. And he says, now you're burning. Now you're burning. And you will go away. And it's like, yeah, I'm burning. I'm burning. And that's what we do as we talk about these things. Now you're burning. Not with phony escapism, but rich truths. Now you're burning for the Lord. And that's our hope. Let's pray together as we finish. Almighty God, as we as we have looked at these studies, as we've stretched our minds to, to even grasp the height and depth to know the love of Christ, all of this that surpasses knowledge. Oh Lord, I pray that you would teach us, humbly te teach us that we would be humble, but teach us and cause us to grow and to be strong and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing in fact it is you who are working in us and that the end is assured even in your own mind and we can trust you for all of it. Oh Lord, glorify yourself in the midst of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. We're going to sing the doxology. If you don't know it, just come along. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed this time. If you got questions for me, you can fire them away afterwards and come on up. But thank you all for coming.